Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm here today to discuss After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War, released earlier this year in paperback for the first time by Harvard University Press. The author is University of California Davis Professor of History, Greg Downs. Welcome to the show, Professor Downs. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. So what prompted you to study the occupation of the South during what you'd refer to as post-surrender wartime, 1865 to 1871? And how do you distinguish this temporality from battle time and peacetime? Well, those are are good questions, and they uh, pull me back into a a different uh, historical moment, the one that's not so far from from our contemporary um, one. Um, as I was uh, working on uh, my first book of history, uh, prior to that, I published a book of short stories, Spitbass. But as I was working on my first book of history, which was about Reconstruction, um, I, was, I had been, and it's called Declarations of Dependence. That book was really focused on questions of how people understood government's relations to their lives. But I kept coming across in this context Um, government officials who themselves were baffled at the idea of what their role was in navigating, negotiating, and potentially um, managing daily life in the uh, post-surrender South. Um, And I had kind of come with an expectation um, that federal officials expected to do very little and then were baffled when black and white Southerners asked them to do a great deal, not just the kind of law enforcement or electoral enforcement activities that we associate with Reconstruction, but a huge range of service requests from uh, black and white Southerners. Um, But instead, I found that I started to notice that many of these federal officials themselves had no real clear sense of what their job was, but also they did not have a confidence that their job was small. Um, And this kind of uh, stuck in the back of my mind. I had, you know, started this that book with a different frame of reference. I wrote that book. Um, and I decided that, and, and I had noticed as I read through that with the exception of some uh, histories that have been written mostly in the, in the 60s and 70s and, and maybe early 80s, there wasn't actually a great deal out there about the ways that the army in particular had been uh, utilized during Reconstruction. There was always invocation of military Reconstruction. Um, and then a kind of rush to the Freedmen's Bureau as if it was a self-standing bureaucracy. At the same time, I was highly interested in things that were developing in other parts of uh, social sciences and in current affairs, many of which were tied to questions about occupation that had emerged from study of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And so uh, in the after- um, the, after the commencement of those wars, there'd been a reinvigoration of occupation uh, in kind of practical ways. When does occupation work? What does it mean for an occupation to work? What kind of force levels are required? How does an occupation, what kind of goals do occupations typically fulfill? What kind of goals do they generally fail at? Um, and how do occupations end? And this literature, um, with, you know, with its own range of controversies and disagreements, this literature was full of skepticism about occupation's efficacy, not just of its ethics, 
which there had long been, you know, a, a, a kind of literature that critiqued occupation's ethics. But much of the literature that critiqued the ethics of occupation assumed it worked, and that's what made it so damaging. In fact, there was uh, increasing work in the aftermath of those wars that suggested that most occupations, in fact, ended in failure and retreat. So this led me to ask, what if we understood Reconstruction as a itself a in certain ways, limited, defeated, overthrown occupation. Um, And to see that its limits, the question that has animated scholarship for 150 years, um, why didn't one line of Reconstruction scholarship, why didn't it do more? Um, And that our answers to those questions have often reverberated back to things like Northern ideology, uh, cultural racism, economic crash, all of which are very important and valid answers. Um, but I started with the question of what if, in fact, the occupation of the South um, resembled all kinds of other occupations that had very different ideological and cultural backgrounds, but a common experience of defeat? And there were people like Albion Tourget, who was a Northern officer posted in the South, who then became a Freedmen's Bureau officer and a, and a judge, a constitutional convention delegate, kind of wrote about an enduring folly that occupiers have as they believe it'll be easy to remake societies they don't understand. And at the time, I was particularly interested in aspects of the occupation literature that focused on an ongoing Um, problem, especially in occupations conducted by democratic societies, um, which is that it's extremely difficult to sustain public support for large-scale utilization of troops in order to occupy. In other words, that the problem with occupation is not solely that the occupiers don't want to be occupied. It's also that the people who are voting in the country doing the occupation will often vote against expending the money or human cost of those occupations. And so with all of this in mind, I kind of started a project believing that what I would do is to look at why the U.S. never developed an extensive or um, expansive enough occupation plan to do uh, accomplish the goals that it had in the, in the South. And so I thought this is what I'll do. I'll, I'll be able to find this information about, you know, the exact deployment of U.S. troops, where they were, how many, for how long. Um, and then I'll use that, you know, work to build up a study of the political and cultural reasons, the blindnesses, that led people to hope, as Tourget had written, that they could make bricks without straw, that they could have the benefits of of transformation without paying the price. Uh, And I really believed that that was the book that I was likely to end up in. But then I found first uh, that that information was not available in the ways that I thought it would be, that there had been honorable studies of the occupation based on Secretary of War's accounts and other accounts, um, but nothing like a systematic study of where the military was, much less a systematic study of what they were doing. So I thought, well, I have to have this before I can make generalizations. I didn't feel comfortable making the generalizations that 
earlier scholars had because I didn't see uh, the kind of depth of evidence, basic questions. Um, how many, you know, where was the army in Mississippi in January 1866? Was that more or less than in October of 1865? Was it more or less than it would be in April of 1866? These things uh, turned out to be very hard to pin down in the literature. And because of that, I found myself skeptical of some of the claims. So I um, decided, well, I'll just figure it out. So I went to you know, repeated trips to Washington, D.C., to the National Archives, this monumental holding of the official records of the national government. Um, and I um, went in and after striking out numerous times, uh, some very helpful archivists kind of set me down and said, um, you know, kind of asked me to describe what I wanted. And then explained why it was so challenging, in part because of the Army's own system, in part because of, of classifying documents, in part because the Army itself made um, significant divisions in how it classified documents based on wartime versus post-war. Of course, post-war they counted as 1866, not 1865. Um, so finding records that were spread in that way, and also because of the way that the National Archives organized. Uh, so for a while, I was striking out. And then, um, you know, finally, one of them, uh, you know, kind of going back through the stacks, came back and said, I don't know where what you need is, but here's two different runs of 200 boxes each. And it's going to be somewhere in there if we have it. Uh, and he said it kind of apologetically. Obviously, the archivist's goal is to say, here's the folder. But I was like, at least I know where to start. And so day after day, I'd sit in the archives and, and open up these, you know, request a pull cart of 20 boxes. And some of them would be all on Oregon or things that are interesting topics, but not what I was working on. And then start, I would find these ones that were the um, records of what the Army was doing in North Carolina, say, from April 1865 until um, June 1865 and, and where they were. Um, and where they were establishing something like a, uh, uh, not a permanent, but an ongoing outpost, which is what I was interested in from my understanding of, of occupation literature. So I would take notes on it. And then at one point, I did my notes there in a way that was highly, I could find them all and use them, but I wasn't sort of starting from a uh, spreadsheet model. I was kind of literally taking notes of each record. And at one point, I noticed that I had some, you know, several thousand records. And it started to dawn on me that what I thought I was looking for was the absence of present, of true presence. And what I was finding was, in fact, that the military was much more wider spread than we had thought. And as I began to organize the things that I found, I started to find that instead of looking like a relatively weak occupation, the U.S. occupation of the American South after the Civil War actually looked in many ways like a relatively strong occupation. Um, that the U.S., one of the key disseminators of this is that the U.S. violated basic premises of, of occupation strategy in that it decided, for reasons I'll go into, it decided that it needed a geographically widespread occupation, which is the thing that from Roman times down, so military writers had warned was impossible, that you could occupy a city, you could occupy transport lanes, rivers and roads, but you could not remake a countryside. 
But in fact, the U.S. eventually established outposts at more than 700 places across the U.S. South, a staggering number, so staggering compared to the kinds of other 19th century occupations, say in the British Empire and Ireland and South Asia and elsewhere, um, and staggering even compared to some 20th century occupations, though nothing compares to the extent of occupations that we see in, in Europe uh, in going from the end of World War I into, into, into World War II. Um, and also that U.S. military presence overall in the South was larger um, than I had thought or than anybody had really thought. Um, and so then I started to work on, and this has certain, uh, you know, historiographical implications, implications for how we understand the story that we'll get to on your follow-up questions. Um, but to start to wrap this up, as I was, so I started with the premise that I would find a limited weak occupation and then I would have to explain it. And I started to discover there was a much broader occupation. Then I had to explain something else. If A, how, why did a U.S. government that looked uncertain as to its goals for reconstruction try something so bold and ambitious? And B, how is it that something bold and ambitious failed in the ways that reconstruction, in certain ways, not every way, seems to have failed? It's one thing to tell a story of something that ends in disappointment because it was flawed from the beginning. It was another thing to tell a story in a way an even more depressing story. What if it wasn't a flawed effort from the beginning? And how do we explain a disappointing outcome when we see a surprisingly bold effort? And so that turned it into a completely different book than I had expected. Duly noted. So let's go back to the beginning. Well, a beginning, I guess. How and why did General William Tecumseh Sherman's armistice framework, in contrast to the executive branches vacating of Southern civil governments, even Kentucky, indirectly set the stage for federal extension of war powers? And what were Northern and Southern perspectives on this extension, as well as bans on Confederate culture? So to me, the magic of studying the Sherman plan is that it helps us do something that as historians we're always trying to do but can be perilously hard to accomplish. When we look back at the past, it is almost inevitable that we have what great historians have called the condescension of history, that we look back with more knowledge and we believe more wisdom and uh, kind of uh, you know want to shake the past. So why couldn't they see it this way? Um, and this ends up being, a, that, the problem with that is it ends up being a history of ourselves, not of the past. So that as historians, we're interested in seeing, especially interested in seeing the moments when there are a range of alternatives on the table at the time. When we can say people at the time believed that these were possibilities. When we can say people at the time suggested this, not just me. When we can say that this was possible then, then we're in much firmer ground as historians to explore why those avenues weren't pursued. Um, and in fact, as we look as historians, there are all kinds of uh, possibilities floating around in the closing years of the war that tell us that it's not just us looking back 
trying, wishing that more had been done. Many people at the time were wishing that more had been done. So the Sherman Plan, let me explain what it was and why I think it's, it's important to center in our understanding of the transition from war to Reconstruction. After uh, Ulysses S. Grant had received the surrender and rejected from Robert E. Lee in Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, um, and after he had rejected um, Lee's request for peace and sustained an ongoing period of war with a Confederate surrender rather than seeking peace between the U.S. and the Confederacy, the question all eyes then turned southward, where William Sherman had, after capturing Savannah at the end of 1864, turned northward into South Carolina and was pursuing the other remaining major Confederate army into North Carolina, where eventually they would encounter near current-day Durham, North Carolina. In the interim, Sherman got, as he prepared to meet, word of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So he's concerned that as news spreads among his men who did not know that there'll be a wholesale massacre of Confederates, he's concerned about what will follow this surrender of the second major Confederate army. Perhaps he's confused about the lines of assault. Perhaps he himself has been shaped by his own experiences in 1864 when Lincoln had encouraged him while marching through Georgia to reach out to the governor of Georgia and to see if they would make a separate peace. In any event, when Sherman meets with the Confederate general commanding this last major Confederate army in the field, there are some more out in the area around the Mississippi Valley that come later, they reach an agreement that includes not just that army, but the remnants of a fleeing Confederate cabinet, which is stuck in the railroad yards in Greensboro, North Carolina, in a desperate effort to go south. And the agreement they reach is not a surrender, but peace. From the Potomac to the Rio Grande, that, they'll sur- that the entire Confederacy, not just this army, will surrender to the U.S. in exchange for peace. And Sherman lays out then what that will mean. That the soldiers return home, that the governments of the Confederacy become the governments of the South, meaning all the state governments remain intact, that all Confederates retain their political rights. Essentially, what he promises is a kind of status quo ante with no mention of slavery. People in charge of the South continue to be in charge. They continue to have monopoly over the political power, and they don't even have to make a promise about slavery. The Congress has passed the 13th Amendment. Sherman says they recognize that slavery is dead, but in fact, it would have been possible for Southern states to have impeded the passage of the 13th Amendment if restored to this position of peace. So this is a signal moment where we can understand 
the culmination of some things that have been very important in the literature. A lot of historians have written that the U.S. cared more about restoring the Union than accomplishing other war goals, including emancipation or civil rights. Sherman's armistice is the ultimate proof that there might be something to this. That's what he wants. Just restore the Union, get nothing more. There are a lot of people who, writing from Reconstruction, have said the U.S. did as little as possible. Well, Sherman's armistice would be doing as little as possible. The problem is that it's proof of something that didn't happen. And that raises grave questions about the interpretive value of either a union war framework or understanding the Civil War, a framework that diminishes the importance of emancipation and civil rights to U.S. war aims, or of a way of understanding Reconstruction as pursuing the minimum lines possible from the beginning. Because Sherman's plan is one of the great political catastrophes of all time. When it comes to Washington, Grant has horrified the cabinet unanimously. Andrew Johnson, now replacing Abraham Lincoln, rejects it. The cabinet, including the conservatives who will follow Johnson out of the Republican Party, reject it immediately. Their inclination is not only to reject it, but to humiliate and to relieve Sherman for doing something so catastrophically opposed to U.S. aims. Grant instead goes to give Sherman one last chance, and he tells him, take it back or else. Sherman's plan, then, is an example of history that didn't happen, and it should make us wonder about interpretations that either emphasize a Reconstruction that always pursued the limited ends or a Union war in which restoration of the Union is all the North wanted. Sherman's plan represents the ultimate apogee of those arguments and the fact that it was rejected unanimously, that he was humiliated in the national press for even suggesting it, that his plan and derision of it drove Lincoln's funeral cortege off the front pages, tells us that that's not a a significant interpretation or a sufficient interpretation for understanding the Civil War period. Sherman is appalled. He's as in certain ways a scholar, certainly a shrewd man and a reader. And he starts to list and to say, then who's in charge? If they surrender to us and we don't give them authority, where is the authority? And he says, this is not the way that nations are able to pacify populations. Look at Rome. Get your taxes, hold their cities, control their transportation, and leave them alone. He's not even, he might believe this politically, but he's saying this as a strategic, that he says there's no other choice. The other choice, he says, is Napoleon. And when you look at Napoleon in Spain or in Naples, he says the problem of occupation is not just ethical, but strategic. It fails. It drives people into rebellion. He says if we don't keep them in charge, then we will have to be in charge as an army governing a region the size of Western Europe with its hills and its valleys and its impassable areas and a population at war with us. And he says, since we can't cover everything, we'll have pockets of military rule and pockets of total anarchy. And he says, this can't be what the U.S. intends to do. And in fact, Grant says it's exactly what the U.S. intends to do. Grant has a more 
optimistic vision of how it'll turn out, obviously. This then throws open what the U.S. actually chose to do over April and May of 1865, which is what it meant and why it was a conscious thought decision for the U.S. to vacate the state governments of the South, not to hold over, to arrest, in fact, the governor of North Carolina, as well as other Confederate governors, to threaten to arrest any Confederate legislatures that met, and to start to send the army out into the countryside, eventually to these more than 700 spots in the Confederacy, more than 900 in the slave south, to send them out and there to proclaim, as they do over and over in May and June of 1865, that they recognize no law but their own. They can choose to work local sheriffs and judges if they want to. They can order those sheriffs and judges to carry out army orders, or they can fire them and replace them. And this leads to the circumstances that Sherman thought would create inevitably an an insurgency against the United States and also pockets of violence. But it's also what holds open the possibility of transformation. Because if the slave owners are still the sheriffs and the judges and the legislatures and the governors, not much is going to change. And the idea of the possibility of change resides in being able to articulate a different vision, a vision that requires overthrowing the Sherman order, armistice offer, to say that instead the white South while it'll eventually recover a great deal of its power, is not in charge in 1865. After Appomattox freed only a quarter of the total slave population, how and why did freed peoples conceive of their proximity to military force of the state as confirmation of their freedom and rights? In your response, if possible, please really briefly address uh, federal soldiers' prejudices, uh, the Halleck Plan, and any uh, oppositional orders. So one of the interesting things about the history of emancipation, of which there's an enormous amount of tremendous literature, is that it has often focused upon the war years. Um, And yet, where the estimates differ very slightly, but the range of estimates that I'm aware of go from between 2.6 to 2.8 million of the 1860, of 1860s, 4 million enslaved people were still in slavery in April 1865. In other words, that of the 4 million people held as slaves in 1860, the estimates are that about 2.6 to 2.8 million remained in slavery as the Confederacy surrendered. Why is that? Most of them are deeply behind Confederate lines, far from access to power that could recognize their freedom. Now, behind those lines, all kinds of interesting things are happening. Some strikes, some negotiation between remaining planters and planters' wives and enslaved people over new terms, a lot of flight, etc. But the and the other thing that's shaping the endurance of slavery is its persistence in Kentucky, where it remains legal until the 13th Amendment takes a place, takes place. So you do have 
hundreds of thousands, maybe 300,000 or something in that ballpark who reach U.S. contraband camps for a time in the North. You have hundreds of thousands in the parts of the South that are occupied, others in the border states that do eliminate slavery um, voluntarily, Maryland, Missouri. Um, But still, the majority of enslaved people are refined their freedom after the war. So what about the Emancipation Proclamation? Well, the Emancipation Proclamation established a status, but that status always depended, both in law and practicality, upon an enslaved person being able to claim it. And to claim it, they needed to reach an officer of the U.S. government. That that was the act that made them free. The federal government could establish the authority. The enslaved people had to establish that that authority covered them, and they did it by reaching the U.S. Army. That dynamic continued after the surrender of the Confederacy. That enslaved people recognized that their freedom depended upon their access to U.S. troops. This does not mean that U.S. troops were angels or that they were warriors against prejudice or that they did not themselves share commonly held Northern prejudices against African-Americans or that there were not abuses, rapes, attacks, all of which is true. But in the realm not of trying to measure virtue, but trying to measure authority, Freed people understood that they needed to find an authority on their side to counterbalance the power of the planters. And the army, as it marched through the South after surrender, enacted rituals where they would go onto plantations, read the proclamation. I think we completely misunderstand the impact of this. We often talk about it as if it's delivering news to the enslaved people. But there's very little evidence this is true. Most of the accounts we have of enslaved people suggest that they had known about it for years. They knew the proclamations that they were free. They couldn't act on it because of the overwhelming authority and power of planters, their monopoly on guns, near monopoly on guns, their ability to utilize force in the legal system. Who did the army read the proclamation for? It read it for the planters tell them slavery was over. Enslaved people knew that the war was about freedom and they knew what the proclamation promised them. It was the planters who had to be recognized. But still, enslaved people knew that a single reading was not going to change the world and that being able to put a break on planter power depended upon being able to call in a competing power. So they called for the military to spread itself through the South, thus the wide range of outposts, because how else can you reconstruct a plantation society than by having people in closer to the countryside, in county seats, in crossroads towns. Free people often measured their freedom by their proximity to those outposts, because that's how they could get some sort of restitution. They're mistreated. Can they get to someone else with the power to make that whole? And so free people talk about zones, what we later called zones of, of access, 
how far can you be and still get to the Army? As the Army starts to retreat, as you'll get to in your future question and some of your upcoming questions, read people move into you into cities, not solely because of a process of urbanization, but because that's where the military is. Not because they think the military is perfect, but because they understand the need to counterbalance a power they knew all too well. So this is the thing that drives then the dynamic between free people and the army. Not a misunderstanding of each other's virtues, but an understanding of the need for a counterbalance to the power of planters. What military officers report up from these engagements as practical freedom. You cannot make people free by proclamation. You make people free by force that they can use to rebalance the oppressions against them. And that force requires proximity and authority. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, duplex authority conflicts and those uh, the uh, War Department command zones. Um, what shaped the duplex authority conflicts? And if you can address... Uh, uh, President Andrew Johnson's actions, including the uh, Lincoln Assassination Military Commission, Johnson's May proclamations, um, his interventions in state constitutionalism, as well as perhaps the 13th Amendment, military court systems, and or provisional governors, um, any one or all um, in how they shape, again, these duplex, quote, duplex authority conflicts. So this raises uh, another important signpost in this shift from shift to different stages of war, that when Andrew Johnson asked his cabinet for ideas about how to deal with the Southern governments, he in fact builds upon plans that Abraham Lincoln had been developing as they prepared for surrender. And that these plans grew from the experience of the U.S. in Tennessee and Louisiana and in parts of uh, Virginia and Carolina, where there had been, in some of those places, appointment of military governors um, who were um, responsible for carrying out U.S. policy, as well as some efforts to reinstitute elections. They recognized the problem that Sherman pointed to, which is that an army that was going to replace every sheriff and magistrate in the South um, would be a almost unimaginably, sustaining an army like that would be almost unimaginably difficult. They also believed that they needed to bring in Southern states in order to change the Constitution. There are a small number of people who believe that the Northern states could just change the Constitution. But most of them thought that to get to the constitutional threshold to pass an amendment, they would need votes from the Southern states. So they needed them in in order to, to end slavery. So these things, and there is a strong, both cultural sense of nationalism in the U.S., a desire to treat Southern, white Southerners, at least those who are willing to come back in, as countrymen, uh, not as foreigners, though there's some counter to that, as well as a strong national uh, proclivity toward at least a form of Republican government. So Johnson um, looks at the plans that have been developing for Lincoln. Um, there's some uh, scrambling in cabinet over whether to combine states into broader military districts 
Johnson ends up rejecting that. There is an effort pushed by uh, Chief Justice Salmon Chase to use these proclamations to simply proclaim that black men in the South are voters. Uh, Johnson considers this, but rejects it. He actually shows, I think, more openness to this idea in May 1865 than Lincoln had. And Chase, for a time, thinks that Johnson's accession to the presidency will make black voting uh, happen faster, though he turns out to be wrong. The key difference that Johnson makes from Lincoln is that as he looks at Lincoln's plans, which is one, amnesty for former Confederates below high rank, and two, then the appointment of these civilian um, governors operating under odd wartime powers, he makes them a little harder on the South. And this is a big irony on the Confederates. This is a big irony given what Johnson will do in the next years. But Johnson actually excludes more people from the offer of amnesty and requires more high-ranking and wealthy and, and wealthy Confederates or the people that he excludes um, in order to force them to seek pardons rather than to have a kind of automatic amnesty. So at first, the military is uncertain. Are these civilian governors appointed by the president, so they're not normal governors, are they in charge and what is the military's role? And some of these governors basically try and function as governors. And William Holden in North Carolina appoints thousands of magistrates. Others of them say, my only job is to call elections so the state can call a constitutional convention and remake itself. And they don't do anything. But the problem is that state laws throughout the South prohibit Black people from testifying in court cases against whites under many circumstances, as well as limit their access to courts in other ways. And if these military, if these appointed governors are in charge, then what you'll have is a scenario where at best, states will treat the newly emancipated people the way they had treated free black people before the war, which is, as I said, deny them access to the law, put them under special prescriptions of power. This then raises a problem. This, the army reports, is not what free people expect from freedom or anyone expects from freedom. The answer is to sustain military authority and to create what you call the duplex authority. The army essentially functions as the governance of freed people, while these appointed governors go through the forms of creating an elected government of white people. So in many places, the army either itself or through the Freedmen's Bureau, which essentially works as an adjunct of the army, handles these cases. And these cases then, the cases involving freed people, and runs a, a parallel court system. The problem of that, of course, is you can't run a parallel court system without punishment. And this raises then questions about how that's going to interact. Who's really in charge? If the army arrests a white person for an assault on a black person and a state court wants to free them, who does the army listen to? At first, the army assumes that it's being put marginalized. But over the course of 1865, it comes to the understanding through orders and a judgment of situations on the ground that the wartime power still exists, that they should treat these appointed governments as things that they should work with, but that they do not have to defer to local judges and courts on the matters that they've been given power over. 
So you get these odd dual governments across the South throughout 1865. Now, how and why did Johnson's pardons, South Carolina restoration, approval of the Mississippi militia, the Black Codes, and even, I thought this was interesting, William Seward, all facilitate the limited rise of Southern civil or uncivil government amidst the uh, dual so-called dual government conflicts? So there were inevitably going to be clashes either between these appointed governments or between their replacement, the elected governments in the South, and the army. And one hot point was over militias. Militias now are, you know, have a kind of archaic sound, but they were a key way that state governments enforce their law. Um, that in the absence of state police and the absence of, you know, what we now have as a national guard, state courts enforce their laws by and governors under moments of emergency by calling out the militia. In the aftermath of the war, the U.S. of the surrender, in the aftermath of the surrender, the U.S. disbanded state militias. But as planters started to complain about the organizing of freed people and the potential for slave uprisings, the militia, the, the governors started to ask for militias. And this created all kinds of conflict in which the military feared that the militias would be a planter's militia used against them. Freed people even more so feared that the militias um, would oppress them, as was their essential goal. Andrew Johnson at this point um, starts to show other aspects or facets of his personality. While often at war with planters as a politician in Tennessee, he shares a great deal of, uh, a, region, of a regional sense that whites have to be in control um, and starts to sort of say, well, of course, they're going to reinstate these kind of militias and, and patrols. How else can, can they control the freed people? He also starts to hear crazy rumors that have been spread about what's going on in his hometown of Greenville, Tennessee, including that one of his houses is being used as a brothel, things that are meant to poison the well and to be flattered by Southern politicians coming to ask him for pardons. In this, we also start to see um, the efforts of uh, people around Johnson to look toward a future. And the future they see is that they could bind together what they hope will be a more moderate white Southern power structure. He's appointed a lot of people who resisted secession. Most of them, not all, then were loyal to the Confederacy, as Johnson was not in staying loyal to the U.S., but people who, who had shared a belief that secession was a mistake and that they could reconstruct a party of, with a support there and support from moderate to conservative Northerners and to push aside some of the more radical wings of the Republican Party that they believed had exercised a lot of influence. And William Seward, um, though a he, you know, in certain ways a hero to anti-slavery Republicans uh, prior to the war, um, becomes in many ways a political architect of these kind of alliances. Um, and so that Johnson does permit Southern states to reestablish their militias, as well as to um, permit other expansions of, of the authority of these nascent state governments in the late summer of 1865. So that puts 
the sort of military a little bit in a state of confusion and the defensive. As these new elected governments come into play in the South, something happens that fouls up Johnson's plans. What happens is that the people he's nominated, he's named relatively poor white Southerners, relatively moderate figures, many of them opposed to secession, all, almost all are swept away in the state elections. In state elections in the South, they held exclusively for white men, almost exclusively elect hardcore secessionists. In fact, the alleged Georgia will eventually elect Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, to the U.S. Senate. So Johnson's appointees in North Carolina and other places are swept away in these elections, and a much more hard line, white Southerners reassert control over their states. They pass in the face of Johnson's suggestions uh, to be cautious of, of, of the response, laws that not only some, you know, consider resisting, uh, you know, denial, you know, uh, taking back secession or saying simply that the Confederacy was overthrown. Some uh, tried to, uh, you know, debated whether they could just recognize the 13th Amendment had been passed rather than ratify it. Some, you know, make promises about paying Confederate war debt. And many of them start to make rules for freed people that essentially what we call a black code, that essentially try and treat freed people as free black people had been treated over war, as a set before the war, as a separate caste with a completely different relation to the legal system. And this creates a massive backlash among military personnel, among the press, and among Northern Republican politicians and helps to lead to the, the clashes that you're going to ask me about. In the summer and early fall of 1865, you've already kind of alluded to this in the earlier, but if you can elaborate just really briefly, what were the initial paradoxical reasons for the demobilization and simultaneous expansion of the U.S. Army's role in the South and West? And what were the consequences of increasing numbers of black soldiers? So there's a lot of misconceptions about what happens to the Army after the end of the war. Um, one of which is you'll frequently see statements, including by you know, very honorable historians, that the U.S. turned its might from the South to the West. Um, and uh, as if the U.S. had a sort of overwhelming force that it had utilized in the South, and then as soon as the Confederacy surrenders, it starts to utilize that in the West. And that this turn then would explain again why Reconstruction ended in such disappointment. Essentially, they had the power, but they used it for other things, subduing natives, um, settler colonial projects in the West. In fact, what happened in demobilization um, was something stranger than that. One of which was uh, two processes put in place at the same time that worked in exact contradiction. So there's an enormous uh, desire to demobilize soldiers for two obvious reasons, one of which is financial. The military, the U.S. owes, you know, is paying salaries to people. These salaries is having trouble meeting, you know, continuing to float new bonds. They have no desire to continue to float large amounts of new debt after the war. Um, the second is political, that these soldiers, uh, as soon as the Confederacy um, surrenders, these soldiers write to northern politicians and say over and over, wait a minute. The war is over. Now it's time for me to go home and plant my crops. We're talking about April, May, key times. 
um, in a lot of the north for uh, you know for planting crops. They're like I should be home, and their Congress men start to start to petition. So the military is trying to rush people out. At the same time, it's spreading out soldiers across the south. In this period, people in the West are repeat white people in the West are repeatedly writing saying, "Why aren't we getting any soldiers?" They do not feel, as uh, we sometimes suggest, that the force of the army is turning to the West. In fact, those soldiers who remain in the army are overwhelmingly in the Southeast uh, compared to the West. For a time, this turns. So, the are these tensions reconcilable? Kind of turns on a question of what type of occupation. Um, was necessary in the South. There might be some reason in order to to sustain the U.S. authority. There might be some reasons retrospectively to look and say something closer to 200,000 people. Um, And that might well be a reasonable estimate. In my book, I was interested in looking at what military commanders on the ground were talking about. And many of them actually believed that in late fall, as there were roughly 100,000 soldiers, that they were able to fulfill their orders, that they had widespread outposts as they believed they needed to. They were able to respond to complaints, not that the South was any kind of utopia, um, but they were able at least to respond to complaints and to, and to sustain a wide range of, uh, of, sort of eyes and ears on the ground. The argument they make is that if they lose much more than that, they'll be turning those outposts into indefensibly small units who themselves will be subject to intimidation or murder by white Southern insurgents, and they'll have to therefore pull them in. And you see many of these commanders start to pull in their troops over the winter of 1865 to 66 as it starts to cross that 80,000 threshold and go lower. At this point in December of 1865, Congress is back in session Johnson is making plans for another round of demobilization, and Congress moves to block it um, and to or to impede it on the grounds that troops should be kept in the South until they understand what the situation is. So that slows demobilization, but it slows it at this awkward period where it's already started to lead to this concentration of forces and a feeling of an inability to defend the countryside, which is, after all, where the vast majority of free people live. So these are the tensions that get posed in that. In this context, the West is begging for for attention. White settlers in the West are begging for attention from the army and almost completely unable to get it. Um, That the West will not overtake the South as the location of army troops for uh, several more years. Um, And throughout this period, Western politicians and white Western settlers are in fact arguing that they're being displaced by reconstruction from what they saw as their promise to have a return of military power once the war ended. Um, So we're left with this oddity that demobilization undermined occupation, um, and yet the people ordering demobilization didn't fully understand, weren't trying necessarily to undermine occupation. I think many of them were simply overestimating how easy it would be to accomplish their goals. What were signs of a divide between the executive and Congress over war powers, as well as signs of Republican factionalism over tax relief and military expansion during the 1865 to 1866 congressional session? If possible, please address the Joint Committee on Reconstruction's delay, 
Johnson's vetoes, the 14th Amendment, and the Summer Army Bill, one or all of those, just really briefly. Sure. So Congress is now back in session in December 1865. Throughout the summer, they've been out of session, and, uh, and, and so off the stage, Congress people have been following what's been happening. But Johnson has been able to rule without um, intervention from Congress. And we can imagine a quite different set of scenarios if, say, Confederate surrender had happened in February with Congress in session, in February of 1865 with Congress in session. Because Congress had long articulated that it believed, many Republicans in Congress, that they believed that they had the authority to determine the resolution of the conflict in the South, that they would set the terms of peace. As Congress returns, many Republicans start to articulate the idea that the way for them to sustain their authority is to assert that they control war powers, that war powers that the president asks Congress for declarations of war, as Lincoln had in fact asked Congress in his special session to authorize things he had done in a state of emergency, and that Congress therefore owns war powers. This is odd for us as 21st century Americans, where we have a huge fight over war powers, but not over who has them. The argument is over which war powers the president has. Um, But many 19th century, especially Whigs, believed that there were extensive war powers, but they belonged to Congress, not to the president. Um, The way that they resolve this is that as these new southern state governments, so-called southern state governments that have been elected in the South, send representatives to Washington, D.C., Johnson knows that some of these people are never going to be seated. And Alexander Stevens is obviously not going to be seated. But he thinks that some will, especially Tennessee. And that this will then set two precedents. One, that they're close to getting these states back. And in fact, the ratification of the 13th Amendment is close to being authorized. It'll be done in December. And two, that the states that elected crazy Confederate, that they elected wild secessionists, will realize that they're shooting themselves in the foot, hold new elections, send more moderate people. And within a few months, we'll have a 13th Amendment and all the Confederates back in Congress, and we're done. Instead, uh, Thaddeus Stevens, a Republican floor leader of the House, uh, an extremely adept maneuver, establishes a joint committee and convinces the clerk of the House of Representatives simply not to call on any of the Southern representatives. In other words, not to say, now we have Tennessee, let's have a debate, but simply not to mention them. The others, the remaining Northern representatives, overwhelmingly Republican, then vote to send every Confederate state into a, um, into a joint committee and not to consider them individually. This joint committee then starts an investigation of conditions in the South that helps to publicize the amount of violence, the extraordinary number of violence and uh, vigilante deaths and massacres taking place across the rural South. Johnson, in frustration at this, starts to assert his control as Congress builds in its sense of its war powers into an extension of the Freedmen's Bureau bill that extends the wartime control of the Freedmen's Bureau until 1868, Johnson vetoes it. They pass a Civil Rights Act that is a peacetime measure, um, but that includes a role of the army in enforcing civil rights. He vetoes that. Congress overrides that. They pass a new Freedmen's Bureau bill. He vetoes that. They override it. And Johnson, in frustration, says, I'm going to end the war and issues a proclamation 
in April 1866 that says that as the president, he has the power to declare the war is over. Two things immediately mess. And at first, people in the army used to think this means that we're completely handcuffed. But immediately it turns out it doesn't. One reason is Johnson himself is stuck in a quandary. His own, he knows that if he actually restores civil authority to these governments, largely of ex-secessionists in the South, they'll immediately arrest every military officer in the South, and that he can't possibly send thousands of U.S. Army soldiers to local jails in the South. The only way to protect them is to sustain their coverage under his military authority, that they are exempt from being subject to local courts, as they would not be in peacetime. The other thing is not all the states are in, and that it's clear that some states can't, still haven't come up with ways to govern freed people. When he's asked to sign follow-up explanations stating that local authority and local courts are paramount in the South, he refuses. So even Johnson doesn't really believe it. It's a rhetorical act, not a more than a legal one. At the same time, Ulysses S. Grant gets encouraged by Congress to understand that Congress will sustain the military's power, as it does in some legislation, and he issues a series of orders encouraging the military to step in to keep the peace in the South, and that means protecting the peace and safety of freed people. They're trying to do fewer, much less in the way of trials. But in terms of arrest and keeping the peace, the army retains this power somewhat dubiously, but practically, while everyone looks ahead to say the issue will be decided in October and November of 1866, when the Northern public will have their midterm elections. And either they'll elect people under the coalescing party around Johnson and Seward, a union party that promises to end conditions in the South, or they'll coalesce around a Republican party that promises to pass another constitutional amendment, a 14th Amendment, and that promises to complete the work of the South. In 1866, after General Orders Number 3, how and why did military withdrawal, Southern massacres, Johnson's August peace proclamation, and the Milligan decision undermine military occupation and the freed people's defense of their own rights? And what about military reports from the South? So this goes to the follow-up of uh, the kind of next stages of of what I was talking about in my previous question, Um, that in the midst of this, um, without going into all the nitty-gritty details that are in um, the book, in the midst of this is the army is scrambling to assert both its own exemption from civil arrest and its own ability to intervene when necessary. Um, A couple of things happen that help to capture Northern attention. Um, These are massacres in both Memphis and New Orleans um, that themselves help to clarify for Northern audiences how grotesque conditions are in the South. uh, Now, in some ways, we can focus too much on the anomaly of these, as if they were the key and only things. Um, And it's obviously true that they achieved disproportionate attention because Northerners could understand what was happening in cities. It was concentrated. There were reporters on the ground. But when we look more broadly at the reports coming in from the South, we see, in fact, that they're just a piece of a broader campaign of terror throughout the summer 
uh, spring and summer of 1866, but terror dispersed in the countryside, where it's much harder to get a, get publicity, to get basic information for people to understand what was happening. But these helped to turn a northern public opinion against um, the Johnson Party, Johnson Seward Party, um, and the military in responding to them slowly and sometimes disastrously slowly, as in as in Memphis, to help to reassert some sense of a military role in trying to keep some minimum level of peace, even as in August 1866, Johnson issues follow-up peace proclamation that seems to undercut that military authority. And so from August to November 1866, there remains some military authority, but of dubious nature um, and with grave concerns about whether it'll all be extinguished uh, very soon. In this period, the army starts to be much more cautious for fear that they won't be able to be, that Grant won't be able to defend them against Johnson's efforts to constrain them. Please briefly discuss the 1867 politicking among enfranch- enfranchisement only, peacetime, and occupation Republicans that culminated in the Military Re- Reconstruction Act, House Judiciary Bill modifications, and the Army Appropriations Act. In your very concise discussion, please address one or all of the following midterm election returns, the House and Senate Democrats, Johnson's veto, definite versus indefinite occupation, and the voting higher standard. So essentially, the Republicans win uh, the 1866 midterm elections. The old Congress comes back for a lame duck session. But they're empowered now by public opinion. And it's clear that Republicans are going to act. But act how? There are two key things floating through um, the Republican Congressional Caucus. One plan emphasizes Black enfranchisement and that the path to peace is to extend the vote to Black men and then to let them remake the states. The other path uh, is through occupation that the white South has not been subdued, and until it is, enfranchising Black people will send them into a violent maelstrom. These two things, and many people share a sense that both things are necessary, Um, that conditions in the South are wild and out of control, and that enfranchisement is important. And they're fighting in part over judgments of whether Black enfranchisement will be able to create stability or whether it can only follow after the military creates stability. So there are all kinds of ideas that float around about not letting either Confederate soldiers or Black uh, men vote for 10 years or 15 years, a kind of cooling off period of retaining a kind of occupation until the state white Southerners show that they're able to conform to the expectations of Congress. But at the same time, They're looking ahead to 1868 presidential elections, and Republicans gravely fear going into those without a plan for the South. And this push for peacetime helps to pull together some radical Republicans who had long pressed for enfranchisement and seen it there, saw it as their moment, and some quite conservative Republicans who actually think that enfranchisement will not remake the South, but will give them an opportunity to exit. In this context, you get a fusion of people saying, 
the thing to prioritize is occupation. Some of them had also long supported voting rights for African-American men, but they argued that they had to establish authority first or else they would extend rights that African-American men would not be able to protect. Over the course of bills that pass in separate form in each house, extremely convoluted processes involving conference committees. What emerges is a bill that in certain ways, a Military Reconstruction Act, that in certain ways combines both. That the governments of the South are vacated, Johnson's government's military authority is sustained and expressed as if it had never uh, gone into abeyance. But that military authority is used to register black adult men to vote and then to call constitutional conventions. If those states then in their conventions create constitutions that extend the vote to African-American men, if they ratify the 14th Amendment, and if they fulfill some other unstated um, goals of uh, House Republicans, then they'll be restored and peacetime will come. And that's what establishes then military reconstruction. How did the 1867 military districts impose, and especially after Grant's presidential election, the peacetime State Departments compare and contrast with the 1865 to 1866 occupation? In your very brief response, you can address uh, Sheridan's moves, the Johnson's actions and the Tenure of Office Act, the impeachment failure, uh, the military supervisory government and the uh, Union Leagues, violence after constitutional conventions, and the summer 1868 restoration bill. One or all of those in your brief response. So now the military has been empowered to do this uh, registration and also reassert, has been reasserted that it has control of these governments. Free people are, or have been organizing uh, you know, from the wartime and especially after surrender in leagues and clubs of their own. And this combination creates a fusion of African-American organizing and state Republican parties. Um, and so we get mass registration across the South and participation. We also get the army increasingly stepping in to block the movements of the older of Johnson state governments, removing governors, removing officials, refusing to obey um, writs from, from local and even federal judges and trying empowering, uh, you know, ordering the desegregation of juries, for example, in some places, putting in all kinds of other restrictions. And so and this is the sense in which we get military reconstruction as a myth of military tyranny, that these military governors had an enormous amount of authority. But we miss the relationship between this and the earlier stage of occupation, which is at this point, they don't have many troops. Military reconstruction didn't send that many more troops in. in and although they dispersed troops for registration, it had nowhere near the wide ranging um, effect of the occupation of the South. Um, in 1865 to 66. So they have a lot of authority, but less power. How and why did the 1869 expansion of war powers in Virginia, Mississippi, and Texas, uh, John Logan, the founder of the Veterans Organization, and the reduction of the army, the idea of war powers only to assist the judicial process, and Grant's restoration of war powers in Georgia, all culminate in protracted debates over the first force act. So as the military um, 
runs these elections, establishes this registration, freed people turn out. You get new governments across the winter of 1867 to 68 in the former Confederacy with massive black participation. And in some places, large numbers of African-Americans elected to office. Um, then you get a couple of crises that establish the backdrop to, to, to what's coming in, 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 in 1869. One crisis is of whether to impeach Andrew Johnson for um, trying to fire the Secretary of War who's overseeing military reconstruction. The other is a crisis over whether to accept all the southern state governments back in. In the end, Republicans um, may fail to impeach Johnson by one vote. Um, and sweep in a bunch of new governments. But some of these governments they're aware are not able to protect themselves. Um, And they're deeply concerned about the sustainability of those rights. Ulysses S. Grant's elected in 1868. Republicans come back with the goal of one more constitutional amendment, a 15th Amendment that'll protect the right to vote. Um, There's a huge fight over this, which is a fascinating story of how it gets framed. But then there's also a also a series of fights over how to enforce rights, either 14th or 15th Amendment rights on the ground in the South. Um, As vigilante groups and Ku Klux Klan spread, can the military in time of peacetime enforce rights? If they can't, who can? And if no one can, are these even rights on the ground? Become increasingly pressing issues in Georgia, Democrats essentially block the presidential election from happening. There's massive uh, violence and fraud in Louisiana. And in 1869, the violence spreads deeply into the Carolinas um, and Tennessee, as well as other places. So Congress now wrestles. They've created peacetime states, but these peacetime states can't defend themselves. And what can Congress turn to except the powers of war? And in enforcement acts passed repeatedly in the early 1870s, Congress tries to find some aspects of wartime powers they can move back into peacetime, Um, especially the right of the military to be called out to protect the right to vote. Ulysses S. Grant eventually uses some of these authorities to suspend habeas corpus and send the military in to make hundreds of arrests in South Carolina. But these turn out to be extremely challenging cases to prosecute. And over the course of the 1870s, they get wound down into uh, in they get wound down in ways that eventually lead to their near irrelevance. So, uh, on that note, if you can elaborate just really briefly, how and why did the 15th Amendment, the 1871 dissolution of the Military District of Georgia, and the subsequent force acts that you mentioned divide Republicans, and how did they end wartime? is the Republicans are looking toward a future. Some of them think we've solved the problem in the South. We have new governments. We've established these rights. It's time to move to other issues um, that will allow to to build a, a bigger party base and especially to respond to the demands of an increasingly large and important base in the West. Um, but problems in the South continue to manifest. Um, not simply the Ku Klux Klan that Grant responded to, but ongoing problems in Georgia. There, the state legislature had ex- had expelled all of its black members. Did this count as fulfilling the goals of Reconstruction? Congress uses a technicality to force Georgia back into wartime. 
And this outrages Democrats as well as more conservative to moderate Republicans, saying if they have been, you know, if they seem to be restored to peace and are back in wartime, can Congress do that to Indiana or California or any state? In the fights over this, we get a series of fights over how far can the federal government go for how long? And an exhaustion, this is where you do start to see more moderate members expressing an exhaustion and essentially asking, are we going to send the military in forever into every county to protect every election place? And if we are, are we going to be able to win any elections in the North since there's not a strong support for this kind of ongoing intervention among white Northerners? In the fight over what to do about Georgia, we get a series of these things, of these issues collected together, and the clearest articulation that I can find of what congressional Republicans believe the war would believe about wartime. That in 1871, 10 years after Appomattox, as they reach a resolution to restore Georgia to peacetime, their most adept constitutional thinker says, This is the end of the war. We've sustained these war times for 10 years, and now we have to figure out how to utilize the powers of peacetime to accomplish our goals and to put away the powers of war. A Democratic congressman yells out, let there be peace, an ironic invocation of Ulysses S. Grant's um, campaign slogan. And so at that point, you really do start to see the wrestling with what comes after wartime. Can rights be protected in peacetime? If occupation was the tool used to protect rights, what happens to rights after occupation? What is the continuing relevance and irrelevance of your story to the contemporary moment? And can you give us a preview of your new book? I was interested, as I said in, at the start, in, begin, in, in wrestling with dilemmas of occupation. Um, and there's some relevance there in some occupation scholars who have been working to integrate the um, reconstruction into their understanding of how and why occupations work and when occupations have been either bolder. Um, the, in their you know, respects, uh, many of them see Reconstruction as a relative success. It did fundamentally change the South, not as much as we wish it did. Um, and it did you know, eventually lead to peaceful reconciliation. Most U.S. historians don't see it in exactly those terms. But it raises a couple of questions that I think are of enduring importance for us. And they're questions about um, force and freedom. We have a tendency to want to think of freedom as an escape from any kind of force or oversight, um, and therefore to imagine a kind of rules of law and procedure that protect our freedom uh, that we're able to, to offer. And so to see government intervention or force is something that infringes upon freedom. But Reconstruction raises the opposite problem. Uh, that if, as repeatedly freed people, military officials, observers, journalists said that freedom, practical freedom depended upon force, then what does that tell us about how they understood the role of government in life? And my argument is that freed people and Republicans were coming to an understanding of the idea that freedom is only possible in the presence of the state. In the absence of uh, government presence, people are not free. They're subject to the whim of whoever's most powerful around them. And so this notion of an idea of freedom that celebrates freedom but embeds it in the governance and in the, and in the state. And there's another implication for how we think about Reconstruction. 
which is we've invested a lot in, in investigating the idea that reconstruction disappointment stems from the lack, some lack in, a, in, a, in, in the North. Uh, and obviously there's truth to that, uh, but maybe not as much as we think there is. That in fact, if the white North sustained one of the boldest occupations of the 19th century world, and it still led to these disappointing outcomes, we have to wrestle with some of the other limitations. Some of these are obvious, a greater emphasis upon the violence and depredations of the white Southern insurgency and of its effectiveness. Some of them are more nebulous, a wrestling with the ways that state governmental structures made it extremely difficult to build peacetime sustainable forces like a Department of Justice only founded itself during Reconstruction uh, as an as actual department that might be useful. Some of them also point us to, I think, and also in certain ways, even more dispiriting vision. That if we contrast the 19th and 20th century, we can imagine a 20th century civil rights movement that works through civil society. And in many respects, this is the story we tell ourselves about the civil rights movement. And it's important and a true one. And it's also not the full one. To understand why the federal government was able to carry out decisions like Brown, it's important that we see in places like Little Rock, both the heroism of the families that protested the segregation and filed the lawsuits, and also as those first students are led in, as you pull back, who else is there of the 101st Airborne? And in this sense, we get a kind of grim answer, that one of the reasons that the federal government was able to impose its will upon a post-World War II South is because it had much better armaments than it had in the Civil War. And that in this sense, we can be kidding ourselves if we imagine that our story of civil rights is a story about how peaceful change happens without breaking eggs. And that leads us to, I think, some very challenging questions about what we're willing to sustain in order to get transformational change. And if we understand what it'll cost, how does that help us either to plan of how to bear those costs of transformational change or to decide which transformational changes are not worth those costs? But I want a cost accounting of it so that it rather than a sense that transformational change kind of happens out of the air. And this leads me to the book that will be out in November, which is on thinking of the Civil War era as a revolution. So as I sometimes facetiously say to my classes, the U.S. had one civil war and one revolution, and it's not my fault they got the names mixed up. Um, but it strikes me that the Civil War era is a far more revolutionary era than the period of the so-called American Revolution, and that it's revolutionary exactly for these reasons. The utilization of force to create permanent fundamental transformation of a society in a way far beyond what was attempted in the American Revolution. And that if we want to understand the goals, the ambition, the staggering, you know, uh, efforts of the Civil War, and also the challenges of implementation, that we have to understand it as a revolutionary moment and as a moment structured by people who did not count on the idea that if you just got the law right, it took care of itself, but who understood that there would be a forever problem of how to make the law mean what it says. And this would forever depend upon a willingness to utilize the force of the state to defend that law. And New Books in History hopes you, you hopes that you uh, visit us again with your new book uh, later this year. I would love to. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show today. 
Um, so the book is After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War by Greg Downs, um, published a couple years ago, but actually first uh, its first uh, paperback uh, release uh, earlier this year by Harvard University Press. Is New Books in History a channel on the New Books Network? Please tune in next time. <laughs>